course, in just a moment from the end of this, uh, this chapter. But as we come to the conclusion of 1 Samuel, it's unsurprising to us, of course, that we see a lot of the main themes uh, that have been throughout the book coming together here at the end as well. The, the book for us has outlined the development of kingship in Israel, and it appears to us that it's been written for us sometime after the division of the kingdom between the north and the south, between Israel and Judah. We noted a couple of chapters back that Ziklag, as a result of David's being there, was a possession of the kings of Judah to this day, is what it said back in chapter 27. So in the time of the divided monarchy, this is written for us. And I think one of the key purposes of the book of 1 Samuel is to illustrate, to show that the purposes of God with respect to David are clear, that God's seal is upon the Davidic kingship. And, and you can imagine that when you've got a divided kingdom, a kingdom divided between the north and the south with two different kings, that Davidic kingship or the original Davidic kingship would be something that wasn't taken for granted. That was something that people would challenge. And therefore, as a result, as we come here to the end of 1 Samuel, several questions are kind of being answered. So you can imagine uh, an accusation of the people in the north about David to, to delegitimize his kingship, saying, you know, I remember that David spent a long time living in Philistia, and he was fighting on behalf of the kings of the Philistines. What's up with that? And, and so our author explains to us that, no, 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 in reality, when David was living there as he was, he was actually fighting even then against the enemies of Israel at the time as he made those various raids. And someone might say, well, well, didn't David get caught up in the war that the Philistines were having against Israel? And the answer would be, of course, well, he was brought right up to the brink of participating or needing to participate in some way in that conflict. But right at that point, God then intervened and took David away from that battle. And, and, and then you could imagine another accusation saying, well, didn't David himself, didn't he usurp the throne from Saul and Jonathan? And perhaps even David was involved in the battle where Saul and Jonathan were killed in order to establish his kingship. And so right here at the end of 1 Samuel, you have in effect our, our narrator being very careful to show us that David was not anywhere near the battle at which Saul and Jonathan were killed. So that battle is going on in northern places. David is heading back to Ziklag, and when he goes to Ziklag, and the events uh, that we just read are taking place, he's chasing the uh, Amalekites even farther to the south, down into the Negev. And it's a way of just saying to people, listen, David wasn't even in the region. He was busy doing something else. And in fact, God was with him. And that's what we're seeing here at the end, that God continued to be with David 
while Saul was suffering the judgment of the Lord, which will finally, of course, come upon him in the chapter that we will look at together next week. So that's kind of a big picture of what's going on, but then you can look at each event and see how God is at work within them, and we have a significant event for us here at the end, and I want us to focus our attention mostly then on the event that is before us today recorded in 1 Samuel 30. So now with that, let me finish the chapter uh, beginning at verse now 16 and continuing to the end of the chapter. And when he, and that he here as a reminder is the Egyptian who had been abandoned, when he had taken him, him is David, uh, when he had taken him down, behold, they, they is the Amalekites, sorry, just defining the pronouns here, uh, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoils or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Atak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Let's pray together. Great God in heaven, we thank you again as we always do for your word. And as we come before it this morning, as your people, we pray for illumination. We pray that you would help us to see what is here written before us and to understand it in its context, to understand it well and then apply it well to our lives today. Lord, help me then to communicate your word well and help all of us to hear it well that we might dwell together as a people under your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Recovery. Recovery is the title and the theme of our sermon this morning. Verse 18 of the text that I just read says, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Now, rescue, we have two different words there. We have recovered and rescued. They're actually the same word. So David recovered all that they had taken, and he recovered his two wives as well. Uh, there are good words in our language, and recovery is a very good word. I think it's a beautiful word. It's a word that is full of hope. Uh, think for a moment of the situations in which we use the word recovery. We might describe someone who's gotten over an illness or some kind of an injury or a concussion and say that they've recovered from that. Or you look at somebody who's had a stroke or a heart attack or, or something debilitating and we celebrate their recovery from it. Those who have been addicted to various substances rejoice when they are recovered from it. And we describe them as perhaps being in recovery. And of course, in a hospital, we have rooms that are dedicated as recovery rooms, places where you get healed and the process of healing itself. Uh, I thought of the term as well with respect to sports and how many times you'll hear uh, announcers when they're watching a sporting event use the word nice recovery or the phrase nice recovery to describe a particular moment in an event. Uh, I, this, these are the images that came into my mind as I was thinking about it. Uh, but downhill skiing or uh, ice skating or, or a gymnast, you know, when, when they're on the balance beam or when they're racing downhill and it looks like they're about to completely lose it and wipe out and they don't, you'll often hear, that was a great recovery that happened right there. That was a nice recovery. Uh, or I, I actually then went online and thought, what comes up when you look at recovery? And, and one of the things that was online were like motorcycle uh, races and car races where it looks like the crash is inevitable. And the fishtailing starts with it. And then all of a sudden, the driver, through whatever means, is able to get back hold of the car and get back hold of the direction. And you'll hear the idea of that was a nice recovery. It was, it was close to disaster, but a nice recovery. And I think what our text today does for us is provides us with the hope of recovery because so very many times in life, we too lose our balance and we lose our way and we are in need of recovery. Now, most clearly in our text this morning, we see the recovery of what the Amalekites had taken. So the Amalekites come in, they do the raid, they carry the things off, and we see David go with his men and recover that which was taken. What I would like to suggest for us today is that that process in and of itself, that recovery of that which was taken, is actually emblematic of a wider or broader idea of recovery that we can see in the text here before us. So let me suggest then for us today three nice recoveries that take place in our passage this morning. The first is this. The first is we see the recovery 
of David's spiritual footing. Okay, the recovery of David's spiritual footing. For years now, for years, David has been on the run from Saul. For 16 months, he has lived this rather strange existence in Philistia. And he just got into and out of an incredibly dangerous situation with respect to who he was, what he actually loved, and what he had been called by God to do. He got out of the situation, God got him out of the situation in which he might have had to fight against the armies of Israel. From that then, he takes this two to three day journey back to Ziklag, and somehow, as if things in David's life weren't bad enough, they get worse when he gets back to this temporary home in which he and his men live, which serves as their base. base. If, if ever there was a, a, a kind of uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire uh, example, this is it right here, almost literally, right? So the frying pan was the situation where you're, you're in the midst of the Philistine army and they're all around you, you're on parade, you look like you're gonna have to fight against Israel. That's the frying pan. God gets you out of that and you go, whew, okay, great, that's great. I, I'm catching my breath, I feel a lot better. And you literally get into the fire when you get back to your home and you see that the Amalekites have come in and done this raid in which they have taken off your families, they've burned the city, and all of your possessions have been carried off as well. What do you do? Well, you do what you'd expect. You, you weep, you cry, and you grieve this incredible loss. And then, of course, what also happens here is David's men turn on him. David's men turn on him because they are not happy with what he has done. They were all bitter in soul, is the phrase that is used here. Bitter in soul. And David was distressed. He's broken. He's bowed down. He's desperate. He's got anguish in his soul. The, the picture here is that all is lost. That all that we've been fighting for, all that we've been working towards, all of the hopes that we had, everything is now lost. Call them Mara. Call them Mara. For the Lord, the Almighty, has dealt bitterly with them, brought them back empty, and brought calamity upon them. Now that's a phrase that I've used a number of times, uh, starting of course with Naomi in the book of Ruth who makes that exact statement, call me Mara because she has the bitterness in her soul. But so says Naomi, so said Hannah at the beginning of this book, so said Job, so were these men when they came to David, so when they came to David, when he was first on the run and in the cave, they came to David and were described as men who were bitter in soul, so they are now, and so David is as well, bitter in soul. As Christians, we have a name for this. You kind of look at this and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, aren't these people whom God loves, 
Naomi and David and Job. Why is this happening over and over? As Christians, here's the name that we give to this process. It's called the way of the cross. It is the way of the cross. Our Lord and Savior himself experienced anguish of soul as he faced the cross. Everything in the way of the cross is stripped from us. All of the things that we love, all of the things that we depend on, all of the things that we cherish in this world are taken away from us, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. And at that moment, we are revealed to be what we truly are. And to say it as simply as we possibly can, we are revealed to be, in the way of the cross, people who need God. People who need God, who are utterly dependent on him for mercy and for grace. And when David comes to this point, this pivotal point, this turning point in his life where all is lost, he has come to the place where recovery can begin, where he can no longer depend on himself, on his own wits to get him out of a situation, but where recovery can actually take place. Uh, Psalm 73 is probably, it's one of my favorites, it's probably a favorite for many of us as well. But in Psalm 73, Asaph writes of this, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I related a couple of weeks ago that in chapters 27 through 29, there is a silence in those chapters with respect to David seeking after the Lord. Now, we have to be careful with silences in Scripture that we read them accurately and understand what they're trying to say. But when you look on either side of that silence at what David is doing, it seems then that the silence there of David seeking after the Lord while he is living in Philistia is purposely written for us. But here, here, the recovery of the spiritual footing takes place. When this man, this broken man, this distressed man with his men now all around him, having lost everything, ready to kill him, when this man now seeks after God, the end of verse 6 is the turning point. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, earlier in this book, we uh, noted with joy and appreciation how Jonathan at one point seeks out David in the wilderness in order to strengthen his hand in God, reminding him of the promises of God, being with him and showing him the plans and the purposes that he knows God has for David. Here, David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. And in verses 7 through 8, we see him doing what we didn't see him doing in chapters 27, 28, or 29, he seeks the will of the Lord through the priest. Where's Abiathar? Go get him. Go get him and go get the ephod so that we can understand what the will of the Lord is with respect to those who have come and taken everything from us. 
He acts in faith. He acts in faith even as his forces diminish. And as we come to the end, as this chapter wraps itself together, what he recognizes here is that it wasn't his ingenuity or his courage or his strength that gave this recovery. There's recovery here, but David recognizes that he, though he was used by God, he is not the one who is responsible for it. Look at the way that it's described for us in verses 22 and 23. The men, they don't want to give the spoil to the guys who stayed behind. They don't want to give what we, verse 22, have recovered. We've recovered it. But David says, no, 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 my brothers. This is what the Lord has given to us. The Lord gave it to us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. N notice the, the spiritual recovery that has taken place here in David as he recognizes this. By grace, by grace, David says, by the, by the gifting of God, we have recovered this, and by grace, by the gifting of God, David has recovered his spiritual footing, his spiritual eyesight. And it seems to me that we can take this as a model for us as well, that grace is extended to all of us who have, if you will, lost our footing, lost our balance somewhere along the way, have gotten to the point where everything's kind of been taken away from us and we're left wondering, is there any place I can turn? Is there any hope for me now that I've done this? And, and remember here, we can apply this to those of you who are not believers and say to you, you need to come to know the Lord, you need to come to Jesus for this kind of healing and hope. But David's not a convert here, a new convert. David's a believer in the Lord, a believer in the Lord who became shaky in his walk with the Lord, and perhaps for some extended period of time. And now, by the grace of God, recovers the footing, recovers the footing and appreciates and recognizes the God who is the one who has given all things to him. Recovery is held out for him, held out for us as well. So if then the first nice recovery here is a spiritual nice recovery, then the second nice recovery that I'd like to point out to us in the passage is uh, physical. It's the recovery of the spoil itself. Now earlier I said to us that uh, the recovery of the spoil is emblematic and and indeed it is emblematic, but it's also real as well. It's significant. These men had lost everything. They'd lost the people that they love, the property, the possessions that they had. They've lost their families, their homes, their gardens, their flocks. They were all gone. Their lives were gone. The loss that they experience is, is Job-like in its comprehensiveness. Except that Job knew that his family and his property had been destroyed, and these men only know that it has been taken from them. But as far as they know, there's no chance of getting this back. Humanly speaking, there's no chance of us finding these Amalekites and getting this back from them. 
And David experienced this loss as well. The text is very clear to tell us his wives and his property were also taken. But in addition to that, and in addition to what the other men experienced as well, David bore the weight of responsibility, the weight of being their leader in the midst of this situation. And he nearly lost their loyalty and his life as a result. They were ready to stone him, right? The recriminations that would have been directed at David at this moment are not difficult for us to imagine. David, I told you we should never have come to Philistia. Why are we here in the first place? Why didn't you kill Saul when you had the opportunity to do so? Why didn't you better fortify Ziklag? Why didn't you leave a force behind in Ziklag? David, you are the one who is responsible for all of this loss and our bitterness and soul. That's the way it goes when you're in that position. And as we read in this text, <laughs> these men were not angelic all the time, <laughs> right? I've suggested earlier that they were making progress and they were making growth to become David's mighty men, and I think that's true, and yea and amen. But all of us have got our moments, and these men have their moments, and here in the text they are described in verse 22, then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who went up with David. They said to the ones, you know, who were, were behind, you're not getting any of this. And of course, I'm sure those were some of the same guys who had picked up stones in the very beginning of this and were saying, David, that's it, buddy. We're, 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 we're turning over a new leaf in terms of leadership here, and we're taking it out against you. The pain of the loss, it's, it's palpable, and it's poignant here, but, but then the transition is existent here. Loss for the follower of the Lord is not the end of the story. It's not the end of 1 Samuel 30. It's, it's in there. It's the beginning of the story, but it's not the end of the story. And God gives David the promise of recovery that then gets filled in the rest of the chapter. David says, shall I pursue them? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answers, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. You're going to recover this. The Lord gives them that promise. Now, here of a similar recovery, since I have referenced him already, in Job's life. I'm just going to read for you the end of the book of Job as a reminder. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. 
And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. Job didn't die empty-handed, he died full. He lost everything. It seemed to him, that's it. What, what else is there? It certainly seemed that way to his wife, right? <laughs> Forsake God and die. This, it, you're at the end, man. There's nothing left for you. And Job can say, naked I came in, naked I'm going out, but God has filled him up. And, and that's the way of the kingdom. If you want to hear it in New Testament terms, look at the verse that's on the front of your bulletin. Here's New Testament terms. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. Does that not sound like a litany of what was lost here in 1 Samuel 30 by these man, men or what was lost by Job? It sounds like all of the things that you could lose. For my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The end of the story for the follower of Jesus Christ is not loss, it's gain. It's gain, it's glory, it's recovery. Matthew 6.33 seems to me to be the outline of what we have here. Seek first the kingdom of God, in the words of what I'm saying today. Let the recovery first be in the recovery of your spiritual footing, and all these things will be yours as well. All these things will follow after that. All of these things that you worry about in this life that are even good things in and of themselves, all these things will be yours as well. Some now surely in eternal life to come. More than this, they received back, these men in 1 Samuel 30, received back more than they lost. And so the principle comes to be that we know, share and share alike. Share and share alike and, and give to the elders of Judah. And, and I just asked us this question, I'll, I'll articulate it more in just a moment. Can we not see the character of Christ here in what has taken place in this outline? The, the character of the gospel is revealed to us here. The values of the kingdom are revealed to us here. Loss leads to recovery. Recovery leads to generosity. Loss leads to recovery. Recovery leads to generosity. So the third and last nice recovery that I want us to see in our text is the recovery of the quality of godly and spirit-filled kingship. Like all of us, like every single one of us, David as well, we are prone to wander, right? Prone to leave the God we love. That's a hymn we love to sing, and it was the hymn that we at least were contemplating as we began our worship this morning. 
It seems to me that as I, as I look at this story and the trajectory of it, of it over the past, well, 16 months at least for David, that he's wandered for a while in the spiritual and physical wasteland that is Philistia. And as a result, his coming kingship, his spiritual leadership has atrophied somewhat in the course of that time of being there. And, and I considered that two weeks ago. But we also know this. So, so we look at that, and many of us, I as well, were troubled by seeing the depth of that two weeks ago when we considered David in that section of Scripture. We also know, though, that he is a man who is after God's own heart. God has called him that. The Scripture calls him that. How can that be? How can David be a man after God's own heart when he seems to have lost his footing there? Well, David is called that. And this is what I was trying to suggest at the end of the sermon two weeks ago. He is called that not because of his own lovely heart. He is called that not because of his lovely free will, but based upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. That's why David is a man after God's own heart, because God, in his sovereign, willful choice, is pouring out love upon David and has his hand upon that man, so that though he slips, he will not fall. And in that, and on that, is the recovery of godly, spirit-filled kingship is the, is the base for that recovery. David is a genuinely repentant man. He's a genuinely repentant man because God has fused that into his heart. God has made his heart like that. We see it all over the Psalms. Here, in this section of Scripture, we don't so much see the words of repentance from David, but we see the fruit of repentance. We see the, the actions that flow out of a repentant spirit. We see here the actions of a man who will be king. He seeks the Lord. He pursues the enemy. When his forces are reduced, he presses on. He then defeats the enemy. And, and by the way, it's a significant enemy, right? If, if David pressed the battle for an entire day, and killed many of them, and there are still 400 who escape on camels. That, that's as many as he had in his force, right? So it was a significant enemy that he was going up against, but David defeats them. He receives the spoils, and as he's bringing the spoils back, the, the, the people, the crowds are yelling out, this is David's spoil. Right? That's what it says there in, uh, in verse 20. This is David's spoil. But instead of letting selfishness rule the day in himself or in his men, he, David, gives gifts to men. He gives gifts to men, to men too weary to press the fight, like, like laborers who join midway through the workday, and the owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to give you the same amount. 
I'm going to give you the same amount as those who started early, which always feels unjust if you're one of the ones who started early and always feels really gracious if you're one of the ones who started late. So he gives gifts to them and he gives to his friends, to the elders of Judah who weren't even there. As one writer writes, David is modeling the principles of the kingdom of God here. And in so doing, he anticipates the quality of the kingship of the anointed one to come. Saul was anointed, David was anointed, but there was in the very first chapters of 1 Samuel the idea of the image of an anointed one who is to come who seeks the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Anointed One, who seeks the Father, who defeats the enemies, and from whom, and now I'm going to quote from Ephesians chapter 4, from whom grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The spoils of the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, in the resurrection, the spoils of that victory are Christ's and Christ's alone. They said, this is David's spoil to Jesus belongs all riches and glory and honor and wisdom and power. All of the spoils of the victory of the cross belong to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are his. He earned them. The Father gives them to him. And the Son says, you know what my good pleasure is? To give them. To give them. To give them to the people that you have given to me. To distribute them. See the picture? The, the, the picture of David here is a way to get you ready. To get you ready for another victorious anointed king who will give credit and glory to the victory to his father and give the gifts and the accolades he has received to those who will call him Lord. To those who will follow him. It's a nice recovery in our passage. A recovery of spiritual footing. A recovery of physical blessings a recovery of spiritual kingship. And that pathway is open to us. You and I are not too far gone. We're not too far gone for recovery. Recovery in Christ is open. Now, I could finish the sermon right there, but I got one little paragraph to conclude here. Because I think that's a fair exposition of the text that I've set before us. But I left out five verses. I left out five verses that I didn't comment on at all to this point. I left out a forsaken, sick, abandoned Egyptian slave in the wilderness found and fed a piece of a cake of figs and not one, not three, not four, but two clusters of raisins. Now, now you kind of read that. I, you have to smile a little bit at it. You kind of read it and go, okay, wait, wait. Why do we have to know that? 
Was it just a little bit of literary detail to fill in the pictures for us? It? Is it extraneous to what's going on? Is it irrelevant? And my answer to that is no. It's evidence. It's evidence. Evidence of the provision of the Lord Almighty. We have seen these kinds of little details pop up all through this book. These amazing little, what the world would call coincidences. Little surprises that take place that allow us to see for the people of God, for the readers of these books, that the affairs of nations, and that's what we're talking about here, right? The affairs of nations and a man eating raisins are in the hand of the Lord. David didn't have a, a tracking satellite. Uh, it, it wasn't a modern spy thriller where David could call up to Langley or to wherever and say, hey, track the Amalekites for me. And then the pictures would zone in on here are the Amalekites, here are the tracking, they had their, they had their cell phones on, and here are, the, here are the points at which there was a ping with their cell phone, and we can find them, they're right here. David wouldn't have found them without this guy. But the Lord puts him here. The Lord puts him here. It looks like coincidence, right? He's an Egyptian slave. He gets sick in the midst of this. But the Lord puts him here. And what it shows to us is, is here Dave, here's David leading his men, but going before David, going behind David, on David's right, on David's left, underneath David, and above David is the Lord. And that's what those five verses show us. The recovery that takes place here isn't the way then that we might characterize the recovery that takes place in a sporting incident, because generally speaking, they credit the person for that recovery. Here, the credit for the recovery itself belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord who allowed this to take place. God leads the recovery for David and for you as well. And so I will close now with the words with which we open the service. O oh Lord, save the king. The Lord saves the king here. That's what this is about. The Lord saves the king. And then the follow to that is, may he answer us when we call. Not kings like David. We're just the followers. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that is contained herein. And we pray that you would help us. Lord, we often slip and we lose our footing and we lose our way. And we pray that you would help us, whether that's as an individual or whether that's as a family or within a position of leadership that you have given to us of some sort. We pray that you would help us to follow after you. Lord, provide for us. Provide for us a way of recovery in this world.